Thank you, Deb. Good morning, everybody. I am utterly amazed, Deb, that you didn't say that one of the things that made you sad was when Wales lost at the rugby. I think you've sold your birthright there. <laughs> I say again, you sold your birthright there. <laughs> After eight years in, in Wales, I, I, yeah, indeed, indeed, indeed. It's lovely to be with you this morning, um, and I think it's warm enough to do that now, so uh, it's slightly more normal. It's actually four years and one week since Peter and I moved into our new house. We moved from Cardiff uh, to Shoreham, and uh, although Cardiff's not cheap, moving into the southeast of England inevitably involved a degree of downsizing. The big difference in our new house uh, was that for the first time in over 40 years, we're now living in a house that doesn't have a garage. And I have to tell you, I am not worrying about the car here. Do any of you keep your cars in the garage? No, not the car. But where on earth were we going to store all those boxes? Those boxes full of things, all sorts of things. Some of them we'd brought into marriage with us and other stuff we've gathered over the years. Uh, and then there's the stuff you keep just in case, you know? That stuff that might come in handy one day. But faced with no garage, a smaller house, and more stuff to fit into it because we were amalgamating two offices full of stuff into the house again. Well, time had come for a modicum of decluttering, you know, to summon up our inner Marie Kondo, and if you don't know, she's the great decluttering guru, time to throw some of this stuff away. But you and I know that throwing stuff away is something that some people find easier than others. And uh, I'm not going to go into the inner dynamics of our marriage here. But, yes. <laughs> Joshua, however. Joshua, the Old Testament reader we've been hearing uh, about in our reading this morning. Joshua, we can be reasonably confident, had never heard of Maria Kondo. But he is a man who seems passionate about decluttering. Did you hear it? It was there in verse 14 and, and towards the end of the passage again in verse 23, where Joshua passionately urges the people to throw away your idols. Throw away the idols, the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river Euphrates and in Egypt. Throw them away and yield your hearts to the Lord. You see, the people of Israel had assumed that they could worship the Lord, they could worship the living God, and they could keep these other gods as well, the local gods that they looked to for security, for identity, the gods of the crops, the gods of the economy, the God they kept in their boxes for those areas of life where following God's ways just, well, it didn't seem very practical. Maybe it all felt just a bit too risky. 
And they'd lived with this assumption that they could worship God and hang on to these other idols. They'd lived with it for so long that they didn't even notice they were doing it. It was normal. Martin Luther, the great reformer, describes an idol as that which your heart clings to and in which it trusts, what it relies on. That, I say, is your God. I wonder, what is it that our heart clings to? What is it that our heart clings to and in which it trusts? In other words, where do we look for our security, for our sense of identity, not in theory, but when the rubber hits the road? For lots of us, it's our job, our status, our pension, our family, if we're fortunate enough to have those sorts of things, and they are all good things. They are wonderful gifts, gifts we are so grateful to God for. I'm not saying that those things, and I'm certainly not saying that family isn't important. But have you ever thought that they can become idols? And you know, we live in a society that worships other gods, the gods of materialism and consumerism, those systems of getting and having and making and spending that control our lives. I don't know if you've seen any of the Christmas ads yet. I guess we'll notice them more once the Black Friday ads are well out of the way. Back in the days when our boys were young, our ads were a bit less sophisticated. But, you know, I remember in those weeks, running up to Christmas, they'd be watching the television and the Christmas ads would come on and they'd be targeted particularly, of course, at the children. And my lovely children, my lovely boys, would become something else. (laughs) Oh, Mom, I, I, I want this. I'd love that. All my friends are getting... And part of the problem was many of their friends were. And, of course, as a parent, you want to give it to them, don't you? You know, I hated what those ads did to my kids, how the gods of consumerism tried to get inside them and shape them and control them. And then, while we were in Cardiff, I was involved in the work of an addiction centre, working with people in recovery or not, from all kinds of addictions, including alcohol. I wonder, do you remember Alcopops? Those sweet-tasting, alcohol-based drinks designed for what they call entry-level drinkers. Gives it away a bit, doesn't it, really? Designed for teenagers whom they'd entice with their packaging and marketing strategies. And, of course, once you have got them, you have got them and their spending power for life. Now, I'm not teetotal. I'm not anti-drink. But what makes me angry, really angry, is the profit-based exploitation and manipulation of people's lives. What makes me angry are the systems of getting and having and spending and that control our lives. 
that wrap their sticky tentacles around our hearts. Remember a few years ago, I had a friend who'd set her heart on getting a caravan. I guess it would be a camper van these days, wouldn't it? But she knew exactly the caravan she wanted, and if only they could get this caravan, their life would be so much better. And I remember her telling me that no sooner was that spanking new caravan parked up on the drive than she knew. She knew it wasn't really what she wanted, wasn't really what she needed. I guess my friend was coming to realise uh, what the North African Bishop Augustine of Hippo said centuries ago. Oh God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. Or as Jesus puts it in John 10, 10, the thief comes only to rob and steal and destroy but I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. You see, consumerism eventually consumes us. But Jesus comes that we might have life and have it to the full. Back in Joshua, the people knew all of this. They knew how good and gracious God was, how good and gracious God had been to them. And they respond to Joshua's call to give themselves fully and faithfully to serve the living God. Far be it from us, they say, to forsake the Lord and serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us and our parents up out of Egypt from that land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. Oh, yes, the people want to be loyal to Yahweh. They know he is the source of life. They know it, and they are up for it. But they find it's not that easy. And you only have to look across the page, over the page, into the book of Judges, following the book of Joshua, and what do we find? We find God's people failing to trust and follow Yahweh, failing time and time and time again. Oh, the desire is genuine, but they keep on failing. Why? Why can't we do what we so want to do? Because things haven't changed much over the centuries, have they? Well, not if you're anything like me. Why can't we do what we so want to do? What's not working that time after time we seem unable to commit ourselves in the way that we genuinely want to well, when something's not working, you take it apart, don't you? You strip it back. You look deeper to find where things began to go wrong. And in this case, for us, that means going back to the beginning of the human story, back to Genesis, back to the Garden of Eden. Okay, where did it all begin to go wrong 
in that story in Genesis? Any ideas where it began to go wrong? I think it began to go wrong at the beginning of chapter 3. It began to go wrong when the serpent, the father of lies, whispered in Eve's ear, did God really say? Are you sure you can trust what God says? Eve, are you sure God's really got what's best for you at heart? The subtle planting of doubt about God's goodness, about the power of God's goodness in the mind and the heart of a human being. Can God really be trusted with what's most precious to us? Uh, when I was at university, you know, in another century up in Durham, um, I had a friend, I'll call her Monica, and she had a fiance. I'll call her fiancé James. And James was clever. He was studying down in Cambridge to be a doctor. <clears throat> and Monica was utterly besotted. You know, James was her son and her soul, even more so perhaps when there was a couple of hundred miles between them. Uh, yeah, we heard a lot about James. Monica was a Christian. She was part of the Christian Union. She was fully signed up to following Jesus. But I remember her confessing one day that she never prayed about James. She never prayed about him because she was scared. James meant so much to her that she was scared that God might take him away. She struggled to trust God with what was so important to her. And I understand that feeling, don't you? I get it. And it gets to the heart of the issue. Because underneath, Every failure of obedience is really a failure of trust. Can we really trust God? Now, I need to tell you that Monica and James are well on their way to celebrating their golden wedding anniversary. But when it really matters, can we trust God? Throw away the foreign gods and yield your hearts to the Lord. The first step Joshua urges the people to take is to throw away the idols, not pack them away, but throw them out. Throw away the foreign gods, then yield your hearts to the Lord. You see, when it comes down to it, it is a heart thing. And that's what this stuff about God being a jealous God is about, Verse 19, God's described as a jealous God. And that word jealous is a difficult word, isn't it? Because we often think of jealous people as being petty and mean-spirited. But tell me, if it didn't matter to me that my husband was courting the company of other women, which I hasten to say he isn't, but <laughs> if he was and it didn't matter to me if I was indifferent to it, what would that say about my love for him? Describing the Lord as a jealous God reminds us that God's love is alive and it is passionate. It points us towards a God who is passionately committed to loving his people. 
the living God is a God who opens his heart to us and longs that we should receive his love and love him back. The question is, can we trust God's love? Can we trust the depth and the power of his love for us? I'm uh, reminded of the story of a company who, back in the 1980s, moved all of their staff into one of those office blocks, which were very new in those days, those office blocks with glass walls from floor to ceiling. And we weren't used to buildings being like that, were we, those of us who are old enough to remember? For us, if you threw a ball hard enough, if you hit a ball hard enough and it hit the glass, what did it do? It broke the glass. Well, the great day came. The company moved all of their staff into this state-of-the-art building, and they looked forward to greater efficiency working in these new and modern premises. But things didn't go quite as planned because the firm noticed that the people working on the upper floors had begun to pull their desks back away from the windows towards the centre of the office. And everybody was getting scrunched up in the middle, not very efficient. Why were they doing that? Because people who'd never worked on the 47th floor before were fearful that if they tripped and they fell against the glass, it'd give way and they'd fall. So the building firm sent one of their engineers to meet the staff, and he arrived, you know, with his hard hat and his high-vis jacket, and he listened to their fears. And then he did something which took people a bit by surprise. He walked to the centre of the room, took off his hard hat, and then he ran and launched himself at the glass wall, and he was not a little man. And what happened? He bounced back off the wall. Then he brushed himself down, retrieved his heart hat, and left. He didn't need to say a thing because he had demonstrated, he had proved that the glass was strong enough, that it would not fail. And of course, that's exactly what Jesus does on the cross. Jesus tests the depth and the strength of God's love to the uttermost. And when God's love was put to the test, it did not fail. So, says Joshua, throw out those idols who are only out to destroy you. Yield your hearts to God whose love will never fail. And then thirdly, choose to live serving the Lord. Verse 15, choose for yourselves, says Joshua, choose for yourselves this day who you will serve. Choose not once, but this day, every day, regularly choose to live serving the Lord. Some of you will be familiar with the Methodist Covenant Renewal Prayer. Do we have Methodist people in our midst? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, it's the prayer that Methodists pray every year at their Covenant Renewal Service. It's a, a challenging prayer. It's a prayer that's caught me out more than once. 
a prayer that goes, I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will, rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you, exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full, let me be empty, let me have all things, let me have nothing. It is challenging. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. Methodists pray that prayer every year. Every morning... I use the Northumbria community's office that begins one thing I ask of the Lord. This is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him. Every morning I use those words to choose to seek this day but one to live before the audience of just the one. Why every year? Why every day? Because yielding our hearts, learning to trust, learning to live the new life of Jesus to the full is a process. It's a lifetime's process. What we have here in Joshua is a bit like that covenant renewal prayer. It's the commitment of God's people that they renew regularly and repeatedly. It's the commitment that we make repeatedly, day by day. As bit by bit, we allow God to set us free, free from all of those things that would seek to rob and kill and destroy, free to live the life in all its fullness. That is God's deepest will for us, and for his whole world. Because the truth is that when we worship less than God, we become less than human. When we worship less than God, we become less than human. So we renew our commitment daily, hourly, moment by moment, because we become like what we look at. And because it's our commitment that makes life livable. In this world that threatens to overwhelm us, it's what makes life possible. I found this reflection from one commentator really helpful this week. He says, The oneness of our commitment to God keeps life from being chaotic and divided beyond the limits of human management. In the face of the multiple pulls and demands of human life, human existence is held together and in order by that one and absolute object of our allegiance and loyalty. The demand is what makes human life possible we are not big enough to be God. The one total claim of God is ultimately not demand, but it is the gift of grace. 
You see, it's not enough to turn away from the false gods of our day that are constantly seeking to shape and to control us. Our hearts are restless. We are searching for something better. We also need to turn to someone whose service is perfect freedom. We need to turn to, to, to someone who will not fail us. We need to turn to someone who will lead us into fullness of life. That's why Joshua not only says, throw away your idols, but also yield your hearts and choose to serve the Lord. Peter, my husband, uh, serves as a trustee for something called Big Life. Big Life is a disciple-making movement that has its roots in Asia, but which is spreading across the globe and, and is now here in Europe and in the UK. Big Life Europe works in partnership, actually, with the Yorkshire Baptist Association and friends of ours, Peter and Jane Dunn, who were previously with BMS World Mission, head it up here in the UK. Big Life, as, has, as a movement, has planted now hundreds of thousands of micro-churches, home group-sized churches that reach out to their neighbours and reproduce themselves like strawberry runners, you know? Uh, Big Life is all about disciples who make disciples, who become another micro-church, who make disciples, who become another... You see the, 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 the chain of, of action. And I have to say, it's exciting to see what God is doing in a very different way of being church, which is actually a very old way of being church. I love what Big Life is doing, but you know, perhaps even more, I love the name, Big Life, because that's what I want, that's what I want for my kids, that's what I want for the church, that's what I want for this church. The big life that Jesus calls us into. And that's what God wants for us. The big life, the life that is life, the abundant life that comes with following Jesus. I have come that you might have life. Life in all its fullness. So I wonder... I wonder what God is saying to us, to you, to me this morning. I wonder what the next step of trust and obedience is that God's calling us to take this morning. Where is God wanting you, me, us as a church to step out in trust and obedience, to step that bit deeper into the life that there is in following Jesus. What is it and will we do it? Let's take a few moments of quietness to rest in the presence, in the loving, gracious, faithful presence of the living God. The God who loves us more than we can begin to imagine. 
the God who understands us and knows us better than we know ourselves. The God who longs to lead us deeper and deeper into life in him. The love that God longs to pour into us and pour through us into this world that is so desperately in need of God's love. In the quietness we sit, we rest, and we listen and allow his spirit to move in our hearts and our minds. We don't accuse ourselves, but we simply listen to the voice of God. My children, my beloved children, I love you. Open your hearts. Believe my love. Open your heart. Reach out your hand and trust in me. Father God, we do trust you. And we long to trust you more. For all that you have taught us and shown us, we thank you. And to all that you have ahead of us. And to the next step. We say our yes. In these moments to you. And thank you. Thank you that your heart is so full. Of such love. Such hope. Such plan. And such purpose for us. Lord, it utterly blows our minds. But this morning we bring you more thankfulness than we have words to express. And we bless your name in the name of Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. Amen.